haven't seen my wallet since like Saturday. This cashless account is amazing. And uh, so if you're like, man, I haven't seen my wallet either, you know, just if you, here's some ways you can, you can grab one and leave me your email. They're 10 bucks each. You can, I'll email you like a bill if you want to send me to me in Arkansas. Uh, if you just want to leave some cash there or if you're just uh, going to get them online, that's fine. But there's two over there. One is called the Abrahamic Revolution. If you've enjoyed the teaching over the last few days, um, a lot of it comes from there. And then the kind of the second half of the week, it's going to look at uh, in this generation, um, the second book I wrote. So you have the Abrahamic Revolution. And in this generation, I, uh, the Abrahamic Revolution came out on Father's Day, and I dedicated it to my father, and I br- gave him the first copy. And I'll never forget what he said. He's like, oh my goodness, the Arabic Revolution. Perfect. And uh, anyway, so that kind of ties into our title. We talked, we talked the first morning, Shift the Shouts, right? I hope you guys enjoyed that, Acts 19. And then this morning, oh my goodness, in the words of Neil, diving into the deep end, with um, God's providence, and does he cause evil, does he react to evil, does he um, permit evil, where do we land, and we just kind of hopefully gave you some good thoughts on that, and uh, I don't know, I just thought in light of um, some of the things we talked about with shifting the shouts, and where we're at in the world today, that we would just hit on the Muslim world, because it's really interesting when you talk to various Christ followers, some of them are confused with what they believe and what the Muslims believe. Even the fact if it's like, well, man, it's so similar. We all believe in the same God. And, and you might even hear that. You turn it on the news and you have Christians talk about we believe in the same God. And so I just want to spend the next 45 minutes or so or however long we go talking about this incredible topic. Because as I mentioned the first, the first morning, Two out of every seven people are Muslim. Fifty Muslim countries in the world. One point, like, five billion Muslims worldwide. And there's really only a few evangelistic world religions. Think about the world religions that are evangelistic. Judaism's not trying to convert you. Hinduism's not trying to convert you. Buddhism's not trying to convert you. Confucianism is not trying to convert you. Taoism is not kind of trying to convert you. But when you talk to Muslims and Christians, those are the two evangelistic world religions. Now, you might be thinking Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, but those are more cults of Christianity. And they're not world religions. There's only 80 million Mus- uh, Mormons. You know, you think about the 950 million Hindus. So I think this is just an interesting topic because these are the, this is the other evangelistic ministry, uh, world religion. They're coming at you. Uh, I had a buddy of mine. Who was he? Um, uh, uh, I think it was someone I was talking to here. He had to, uh, yes, for his uh, world religions class, he had to interview a Muslim. And um, he had a meeting set up with a Muslim, and the meeting fell through, and the report was due the next day so he googled how do i learn about islam and 1-800-islam came up and he called it <laughs> and like it was like they sent him a quran they, they they sent muslims from the mosque i mean he was like they are evangelistic and so what do we know about islam what do we know about the founder what do we know about their holy book and so i'm just going to briefly you know fly over this and hopefully it'll give you some good understanding because i guarantee you when you go back to your city guess who you're going to encounter in Starbucks, on your kids' soccer teams, in your libraries, I'm pr- I promise you. And if you can just know one or two things to strike up a conversation, later in the week we're going to talk about the importance of evangelism among various world religions. And, and if you can just think of one or two questions and strike up a conversation, you're going to see actually how easy it is to befriend Muslims, encourage Muslims, affirm some of their faith, but then actually share some of the missing pieces and see what God does. So the founder of Islam is a man named Muhammad ibn Abdullah al-Heshemite. That's his full name, right? Muhammad ibn Abdullah al-Heshemite. We simply know him as Muhammad. Born in 570 AD, so probably before any of us in this room. And um, he he, he was left alone by the time he was six. His mother had died. His father had died. He's six years old. So his uncle, a man named Abu Talib, takes him in. 
And so Abu Talib says, man, I don't have the time to feed and clothe you or the resources, so you're going to have to kind of fend for yourself. And so he learns how to water camels. The older he gets, he learns how to take caravan routes across the desert, and he comes across people on these caravan routes who call themselves Jews. Now, it's very important to know 570 A.D., what Saudi Arabia looked like. That's where he was born, in Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia, it looked like Hinduism. There was over 360 deities that you could choose from. And so, Muhammad, your last name was the deity you worshipped. See if you can hear Muhammad's deity that he worshipped. Muhammad ibn Abdu'Allah al-Heshemite. He worshipped the Heshemite god. He had others to choose from, but he, his family lineage were the Heshemites. Well, he encounters a Jew, and he asks the Jew, how many gods are there? And the Jew says, there's one. And Muhammad's like, no, there's not. There's like 360. On another caravan route, he encounters a Christian. And he says, how many gods do the Christians worship? And the Christian said, we worship one god. And so now Muhammad is confused. Is there one or 360? And then he meets a woman 15 years older. Her name's Khadijah. She'd been married twice before, widowed. And she has money because she'd inherited from the death of her former husband. Muhammad and Khadijah, they meet, they marry, they, and for the first time in his life, Muhammad has time and money. His favorite place to go is a cave just outside of Mecca, Saudi Arabia on Mount Hira. He would go in that cave and he would say, show yourself to me. Are you one or many? And it is said in 610 A.D., so now the prophet Muhammad is now 40 years old. 610 A.D., it is said the angel Gabriel appears to him and speaks the holiest phrase of Islam. La ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasul Allah. There is one God, Allah, and you are his prophet. He begins to freak out. He doesn't know what to do. He can't come against his gods of his own tribe, his own clan. He can't speak against the Heshemite tribe. What is he to do? He goes back. He tells Khadijah, I had a vision. Gabriel, the angel, appeared to me. Here's what Gabriel said. She says, you have to tell your uncle. You have to tell your people. He says, they're going to kill me. She says, you have to do it. She talked him in to sharing the vision. Thirteen years later, he has about 90 followers, and it becomes a problem to his own clan as they see him coming against the Heshemite God. Thirteen years later, after his original vision in the cave on Mount Hira in Saudi Arabia, Muhammad, they try to assassinate him, his own people. He flees 260 miles north to a city called Medina, he chooses Medina of all the cities because Medina was where the Jews and Christians lived, and they promised Muhammad safety. With his 90 followers, now 53 years old, with no known education, never learned to read or write, Muhammad decides to take the men of the 90 and he remembers the, the places he was robbed many times before as he took these caravans around. He takes the men of the Muslim community and he takes them to the places he got robbed. And as the caravans pass by, they jump out and they offer the caravans three options. Pay a tax for protection, convert to Islam, or fight. After 10 years, the prophet's now 63. He has 11,000 followers. He goes back down to Mecca, the 260 miles south, in a bloodless battle. He's crowned king and unites all tribes under one flag and one God, Allah. That year, he dies of a fever, leaving behind no written work, and no known successor. And again today, I'll say it. Two out of every seven people breathing would die for that man. Two out of every seven people breathing would die for that man. 
This is pre-Islam. You can see Mecca right there. You see Jerusalem in the middle right underneath Mecca. You see Medina where he fled. The green represents Islam at the prophet's death. The green represents Islam at the prophet's death. So when I'm going to use Muslims and Islam interchangeably. Islam is just the, what you call the religion. Muslims is what you call the followers. See, we have it easy. Christians, Christianity. They don't have it that easy. Islam, the religion. Muslims, those who follow the religion. Look at this next one. Within 30 years of his death, after his death, look at how fast Islam spreads. Islam spreads incredibly fast. Within 100 years of his death. Within 100 years of his death. Within 200 years of his death. Every black dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Muslims. Every black dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Muslims. I was in a mosque in Los Angeles, California. The imam, the priest of the mosque, took me downstairs. He showed me this map. It was all huge. And he said, every major Muslim mosque in the world has this map. It's color-coded. It's all in Arabic. And it's the least percent places that are, that are reached for Islam and the greatest that are reached. So he said to me, the green is the highly reached places of Islam. And we're asking Allah to send our youth to the pink and red. I didn't want to tell him, but I'm like, you know, you could kind of, you could advertise an 80-80 window. Think about that. They have their, we have our 1040, they have our 8080. And so today there's roughly about 2,100 Muslim people groups in roughly 49 or 50 nations. You cannot deny any of the six tenets that Muhammad laid out and call yourself a Muslim. If you deny any of these six, you are not a Muslim. To be a Muslim, you have to profess there is one God who is all-powerful. To be a Muslim, you have to say there are angels, some are good, and some are bad. To be a Muslim, you have to confess there are prophets that spoke of old. You cannot call yourself a Muslim unless you say God has given us scriptures. You have to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that what he has predestined will occur. To be a Muslim, you have to say he's going to come and judge the world. Uh, you know, the Smith family, we weren't able to go to Gold Lake. We canceled. What did you learn? Um, I think my takeaway was that I'm a Muslim. Uh, they've changed that much? Yeah, it was emphatic. Um, I'm a Muslim. Wow. I mean, isn't it unbelievable how many similarities we have in common? This is emphatic. You cannot be a Muslim. Every Muslim you meet will adhere to these six things. When a Muslim dies, Muhammad said that you go into the grave, an angel of wrath appears on your right shoulder, an angel of mercy appears on your left, and they roll out their scrolls. Each one has been recording since you hit puberty, the angel of wrath recording your evil deeds, the angel of mercy recording your good deeds, and whichever scroll is longer gets you. If the angel of wrath gets you, he takes you to hell. If the angel of mercy gets you, he takes you to Allah. So as a Muslim, every Muslim you meet is trying to keep the angel of mercy writing. How do I keep the angel of mercy writing, Muhammad? Well, I'll tell you how. The angel of mercy will continue to write as long as you do these five pillars. The first question I ask any Muslim when I meet them, and I challenge you to do the same if you're in a Starbucks line or whatever, it's not offensive. Matter of fact, a Muslim recently told me, he's like, I can't spend time with people who don't want to talk about God. I only want to spend time about people who want to talk about God because that's so intrinsic to his, his life. So this is not weird at all. The first, time, the first time, question I ask any Muslim is this. Are you a good Muslim? And they always do this. And what are they doing? They're thinking about the five pillars. 
they're like, okay, I smoke a little, I hookah, I vape, listen to Taylor Swift, but they're going through the five pillars. Pillar number one is you have to say the creed. Pillar number one is you have to say the creed. I said it in Arabic, la ilaha illallah wa Muhammad rasul Allah. The creed is just this, there is one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. If you say that out loud and believe it in your heart, you are a Muslim. It's the closest equivalent of what we would, in Christianity would say, pray the prayer. And so to become a Muslim, if you're like, I want to become a Muslim, you have to say the creed in, in public with a Muslim there. This in Arabic is called the Shahada. The second pillar is called prayer, or in Arabic, Salat. A Jordanian family invited me over to their house for dinner. They said, it's now time for Salat. I said, I love lettuce. And uh, they said, no Salat. I said, no bacon bits. I was being culturally appropriate. They said, no Salat. And um, prayer, you have to pray five times a day facing Mecca. Well, I don't know if you followed this or not, but they had a major debacle in Islam when they launched their first Muslim astronaut to space because which direction does he pray? He has to pray five times a day. So they actually released a book called A Muslim's Guide to Prayers in Space. I got it on Amazon. It's extremely practical. And um, you just never really know when you're going to need it. I've handed it out just to say, hey, just in case. Um so you have to pray five times a day. Charity, you have to give 2.5% to the poor. 2.5% to the poor. Or zakat. You have to fast 40 days during daylight hours. Muhammad laid out every one of these. And the fifth one is this. You have to, sometime in your life, if you're physically and financially able, take a trip back to Mecca. And so one of the questions I uh, commonly ask when talking to Christ followers about Islam is this. Where did Muhammad get these pillars? And the number one answer you'll hear is this. He made them up. And the ironic answer is this. He took them from Christians. And he took them from Jews. The holiest verse for any Jew is Deuteronomy 6.5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Muhammad added the second half, and I'm his prophet. And he came up with the creed. Jews prayed three times a day. Christian monks prayed seven. Muhammad took the middle ground of five. Charity, you were to give 10% to the tribe of Levi in the Old Testament. Muhammad dropped it to 2.5% to anybody. Fast, can you think of anybody in our scripture who fasted 40 days? Moses, Elisha, Jesus. Pilgrimage, three times a year you had to go back to Jerusalem to celebrate. In the Old Testament, the Feast of Booth, Pentecost, the, the Passover. Three times a year, every Jew in the known world had to go back to Jerusalem. Muhammad changed it from three times a year to Jerusalem to once in your life to Mecca. Incredible similarities. Incredible fingerprint of Judaism and Christianity on Islam. But here's what I want to talk about. Muslims, you know, when you meet a Muslim, people think, man, they're just so spiritual. They're so content. But every Muslim you know, when you meet them at a coffee shop or on your kid's soccer team or whatever... Here's what they go to bed thinking. Here's what they go to bed thinking. Why is, why is there no certainty with my relationship with God? They have no idea which scrolls longer. Muhammad himself said, I don't know if I'm going to heaven. Muhammad himself said that. Surah in Arabic means chapter. Surah in Arabic means chapter. He says, I'm not something original. Muhammad says this. I'm just a messenger. I don't even know what's going to be done with me, at least not you. And so if that's Muhammad the prophet, what does that mean about me that vapes as a Muslim, right, in, in Cincinnati? I don't know why I said Cincinnati. Why is there so much violence inside my religion? I see ISIS. I see Al-Qaeda. I see Boko Haram. Why is there such a lack of compassion? I mean, Muslims are supposed to give, but no one really does. Why am I allowed to make no choices for myself? It, 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 Islam is so locked down. Muhammad's favorite 
color was green. Every dome of every mosque is green. He hated dogs. He loves cats. Muslims today hate dogs. They love cats. Muhammad laid on his right side, never on his left. He brushed his teeth top right, top bottom, bottom right, top left. Muhammad walked into every room, and he began with his right foot as he entered the room. It's so locked down. There's no choices. Uh, why do I have to pray five times a day just to— not a personal prayer, but something told me that I recite. Why am I told to memorize the Quran and not understand it? The Quran, see, in Christianity, we say, man, it's not just about reading the Bible. You have to understand it and apply it. Islam would never say that. Islam, Islam would say the power is in reciting the Quran. So you don't have to know what it says. Just memorize it. You can't know Allah personally. You can only know his will. There are 99 names of God. When we were in the Middle East, we had, in, in the Quran, there's 99 names of God mentioned. And we had a guy, you can get it at some, at some shops in, in the Middle East, we had a guy sculpt kind of in wood the 99 names of God in the Quran, and it's hanging in my office. Not one of those 99 is Father. There's not, you can't know God as, Allah as Father. And so just think about if you're a Muslim and you go to bed with those thoughts. And so when you think about the Quran, I didn't bring one, but uh, when you think about the Quran, uh, the Quran is 114 chapters long, and it's broken up into two sections, okay? And so the two sections, the Mecca surahs are 86 chapters, and the Medina surahs. Now remember, for 13 years, Muhammad spent in Mecca. And he, wrote, he didn't write, he recited, he couldn't read or write. So it's not correct, actually, to say he wrote the, uh, the Quran. He recited the Quran, and 25 years after his death, it was written down. So for 13 years in Mecca, he's preaching, and he's known as just the, the preacher. And he'll say things like this. If you don't believe me, ask the Jews and Christians. We, we all agree. I'm, I'm, I'm here for peace. I'm only a messenger. But then when he gets to Mecca, those 10 years that he has to grow his faith— he has to now go into war. Now he causes his brides to cover. Now he changes his stance on adultery. No longer do you get lashed, you get stoned. He changes his stance on alcohol. He changes his stance on, on how many you can marry. When he gets up to Medina, he has to now create a culture. And so that's when he becomes a warrior and a military leader. So here's how this plays out. If you're watching the news and someone gets up and says, no, Islam is a religion of peace, and they open the Quran and read, what section are they reading from? The Meccan surahs. And if another guy gets up and says, no, look at what he says, kill the infidels, you're like, Medina. Now, the problem with the Quran is they didn't put it together 86 and 28 they didn't do it like that. So you can't, it's not as easy to figure out which is which. Three rules when you share Christ with a Muslim. Never say anything negative about the Quran. Never say anything negative about Muhammad. And never say anything negative about Muhammad or the Quran. <laughs> if you do those three things, you'll be good. Because I want to tell you how a Muslim views his Quran, okay? I mean, first of all, you don't set it on the floor. You don't ride in it. It's at the highest point of the house, the highest point. Let me tell you how beautiful the Quran is, okay? Let me tell you how beautiful and perfect the Quran is. Now, this is from a Muslim's view. So if you ask a Muslim in the library at Starbucks, or he, if you say, tell me about the, the Quran, here's what they will say. It is the most beautiful book in the world. It was spoken by the prophet Muhammad over 23 years of his life, from 40 when he had the vision of Gabriel to 63 when he died of the fever. It was revealed to Muhammad by Gabriel. So Muhammad didn't create the Quran. It's proof of his prophethood that Allah gave it to Gabriel to give it to Muhammad. It's the only miracle. 
If you ask Muslims, what miracle did Jesus do? They're going to say Jesus did many miracles. What miracle did Muhammad do? One, he gave us the Quran. That was Muhammad never healed anybody. He didn't cause people to come to life. He did something even greater than all of that. He gave us the Quran. The Quran is co-eternal. It has always existed. It's uncreated. No one can emulate its eloquence. No one. It's filled with mathematical geniuses, scientific proofs. It talks about what happens to the, to, to the baby in the womb. It gives specific things that nobody could know. It mentions death 165 times. It mentions life 165 times. It is prophetically perfect. If you had a thousand of the greatest writers on planet Earth in a room, they could not come up with one verse as beautiful as, the, as any in the Quran. That's how perfect and beautiful it is. If you are in doubt concerning and wish that we have sent down to Muhammad, then produce a chapter like we have. Produce a chapter. People are saying, you're not really a prophet, Muhammad. He's like, well, give me a chapter as beautiful as the Quran. And this Quran is not, you can't produce it. Only Allah could give it. Do you say he has forged it? Then write something like it. Oh, anybody could say that. Then give me a verse as beautiful as what Muhammad has given. Forget the thousand people in a room. If all of mankind was in the room. even if you had help between each other. Now, that's how a Muslim views the Quran. How do you and I view the Quran? How does everybody else who's not a Muslim view the Quran? Well, it was written down 25 years after Muhammad's death by people who were called the Korah. That's why it's the Quran. The Korah were people who had memorized everything Muhammad had said. And the people of the Korah were beginning to die in battle. And people were like, whoa, the Korah is getting smaller. And when they die, that's a problem. So they actually wrote it down. It's 114 chapters long. There's actually no prophecies. There's no order of coherence. It's not, it's not in chronological order. When they put it together, you ready for what they did? What's the longest chapter and put it first? So it'd be like Psalms, then Jeremiah, then Isaiah, then Luke, you know, reading our Bible, right? So it's just the longest chapter first. There are 6,220 verses in the Quran. One out of every six mention the word hell, boiling, punish, agony, perdition, doom, torment. It's a tough read. It's a, it's a tough read. Every six verses, Muhammad reminds you, if you disbelieve what I say, you will be firewood for hell. Now let's move on. Again, six more verses later, you will be scourged with horrible boiling water, however that works. So here's a, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to see if you can repeat it. We'll see if you can repeat it, okay? So the common mistake that Christians do uh, make when they talk to Muslims is for some reason we say Jesus is greater than Muhammad, right? And it's like a Jesus versus Muhammad, like my, my God's faster in, than your God. But that's not really the question. The way, I'm gonna, here's, the, here's where we start saying it, ready? The way you view Isaiah, the prophet, is the way Muslims view Jesus. So how do you view Isaiah the prophet? How do I view him? He was a messenger. He did great things. He was a, a spokesperson. Did he die for my sins? No. Is he God? No. He was just a prophet. So the way, Muslim, the way you view Isaiah is the way Muslims view Jesus. The way you view Jesus, co-eternal, uncreated, sinless, perfect, triune, you know, like in the, in the, with God, is the way they view the Quran. 
So let me say that again. The way you view Isaiah is the way Muslims view Jesus. He was a great prophet. He was good. He was persecuted for speaking of God. He wasn't God. And you'd be like, yeah. But the way you view Jesus is the way they view the Quran. That's why the Quran is, I mean, imagine like going up to Jesus and highlighting his eyebrows. <laughs> you know, like, so for they would never highlight, I thought that was funny. They would never highlight in the Bible. So again, common mistake among Christians to think Muslims view Muhammad the same as we view Jesus. Muslims view the Quran in the same way that we view Jesus. So I was, t I was uh, talking to my friend when we were, um, when my wife and I were living in the Middle East. His name was Abdullah. And I was like, Abdullah, tell me about, you know, school and university. And he's like, well, actually, I'm doing a paper. And uh, I said, what's your paper on? He said, oh, my paper's on Jesus. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, you know, I'd been trying to share with him. And I was like, your paper's on Jesus? He's like, yeah, it's three sections. You want to hear it? I'm like, absolutely. I'm like, tell me about your paper. He's like, well, section one is Jesus is the most unique person who's ever born. Section two is Jesus is the most unique person who's ever lived. Section three is Jesus is the most unique person who's ever died. And I said, Abdullah, did somebody give you a New Testament in Arabic? He said, no, I'm just using my Quran. Muhammad had an incredibly high view of Jesus, not as high as we have, but he had an incredibly high view. He's the most unique person ever born in the Quran. Muhammad was born of a mother and a father. Jesus was not. Here's what he says in chapter 3 of the Quran. O Mary, God gives you glad tidings from him. His name will be Jesus, held in high honor in this life and hereafter. And she says, how will I have a son when no man has touched me? And he says, what God wills, he wills. He has declared a plan. And he says, be, and it is. Again, every Muslim believes Jesus was born of a virgin. Every Muslim would affirm he's the most unique person who's ever lived. Why? Look at the miracles Jesus did. He healed, the, he healed the blind. He healed the lame. He raised the dead. He will be a messenger of the children of Israel. He says, I will heal the blind, the leper, the dead. He was the most unique person who was ever born in the Quran. He was the most unique person who's ever lived in the Quran. And guess what? He's the most unique person ever died. Muhammad died of a fever at age 63, and you can go see his burial in Medina right now. Next to Muhammad is another burial spot. It's Jesus' tomb. But every Muslim says that one's empty. That one's empty. Why? Because Surah chapter 3. Allah said to Jesus, I'm going to terminate your period of your stay on earth and cause you to ascend unto me. Allah took him. He's not buried anywhere. You can't go to a grave and dig up his bones. We can do that with Muhammad's bones. And every Muslim would say he's the most unique person because we're awaiting for his return. We're, every Muslim's awaiting for Jesus' return. This is what chapter 43 says. And this will be a sign for your coming in the hour of judgment. Have no doubt, but follow the straight way. And again, Muhammad said, if you don't believe me, go talk to Christians. Go talk to Jews. He called us people of the book. But if you were in doubt as to what I am saying, if you don't believe me that there is one God, go ask the Christians and Jews. Now think about this. This is pretty fascinating. The, the, the Bible was not translated in Arabic until 200 years after Muhammad died. Let me say that again. The Bible that we hold was not translated into the Arabic language until 200 years after Muhammad died, which meant all Muhammad had access to was oral stories that Jews and Christians told him. So he would talk to Jews and Christians and hear these stories. All he had was oral stories of what happened. Yet here's what makes its way into the Quran. How much do we have in common? as a starting point for conversation. 
Oh my goodness. So much. There's actually only three things that we differentiate with when it comes to Muslims. And if you don't think these three things are a big deal, then you're probably pretty good. You're probably okay with Muslims. If you think these three are a big deal, it's going to be a problem. So I don't know if the three things we disagree with, if you think it's a big deal. You might. I don't know. If you're willing to give these three things up, you're going to be fine with Muslims. If you say, no, I can't give these things up, there's going to be problems. Here's the th only three things, which could be minimal, that we disagree with with Muslims. Muslims deny the Trinity. Muslims deny the divinity of Jesus. And Muslims deny the crucifixion. If those are small things in your faith and you're willing to succeed them to Islam, then we're all good. But I've met Christ followers who would say those are big deals. Right? <laughs> so, NASA, we have a problem, okay? Because guess what? Those are huge deals. The only three things we differentiate with are major deals, right? They're deal breakers. And so Muhammad was emphatic. There is no trinity, there is no divinity of Christ, and there is no crucifixion. Chapter 4, O ye people of the book, who's he talking to? Us. Don't exceed the limits of your religion, and do not say what is untrue. The, the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, is only an apostle. Say not trinity. Say not trinity. He rejects the divinity of their son. In their ignorance, they have falsely ascribed to him sons and daughters. Here's a question Muslims might ask you. Who is God married to? And our answer is, um, I don't think he has a wife. <laughs> then he can't have a son. If God doesn't have a wife, then he can't have a son. Do you think God has a son? Yes, Jesus. Who's his wife? So, and this was an argument for Muhammad. Who is God's wife? So they reject the, 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 the divinity. They reject the crucifixion. In one verse, 40 Arabic words, this is the pristine verse for, for Muslims to deny the crucifixion. This is the only verse in all the Quran that denies the crucifixion. Again, it's made up of 40 Arabic words. And they, Christians, say we have slain the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, yet they slew him not, they crucified him not. They thought they crucified him, but it was someone else instead. And Jesus kind of slipped through the Garden of Gethsemane. They didn't really slay him, but God took him to himself. So we have incredible things in common, don't we? But man, the three things that, that, that we deal with, and let me say, don't let this deter you from talking to a Muslim. Okay, I mean, these are always going to be difficult questions to answer, but just yield them as best as that you can. Muslims don't come to Christ by arguing. They come to Christ through a friendship with other Christ followers. And so it's okay for you to be like, man, that's a very difficult question, and I'll try to give you an answer. You probably won't agree with it, but I'll try to answer it to the best of my ability. I mean, it's, it's hard to explain the Trinity to another Christian, okay? It's hard to explain the Trinity to a non-Christian. It's even harder to explain the Trinity to a Muslim. And so don't let that deter you. Okay, start where you're at. They, they come to Christ through just befriending them and loving them. Again, as I mentioned Sunday morning, people from other faiths, the number one way they come to faith is give them a Bible in their language and sit with them and answer questions to the best of your knowledge. Don't even be like, let me bring in my pastor. They, they need you to love on them and you to wrestle with it through them, okay? So, when you think of the Muslim world, and you talk about movements, Neil's been talking about movements, uh, I want to show you something that I thought is rather fascinating, okay? So a Muslim movement to Christ is this. A Muslim movement to Christ is this. Within a 10-year period, within a 10-year period, between 1,000 and 10,000 Muslims coming to Christ in a particular region— with proof that they've come to Christ by baptism. Okay, for some reason we threw that in. So let me say this. A movement of Christ 
is between 1,000 and 10,000 Muslims coming to Christ in one particular people group over a 10-year period. So if I say to you, are you ready for this? In 1100 AD in North Algeria, 600 Muslims came to Christ over a 10-year period. Is that a movement? No. It's incredible, but it's not a movement. To be a movement, you have to have between 1,000 and 10,000 Muslims come to Christ in one people group and, and, and actively show this by being baptized, okay? So when Muhammad, when, when Muhammad was born in 610 AD um, to 1890, this is how many movements we had. A movement is between 1,000 and 10,000 Muslims coming to Christ within a 10-year period. But then something happened. Look at this. In 1891... An Indonesian Muslim lost a debate to a Christian. And when, you, when you're an Indonesian, you lose a debate. You have to convert to the religion you lost to. His last name was Sadrak. He becomes a Christ follower. And the first Muslim movement happens in Indonesia. And between 1891 and 1999, we saw 13. We saw 13 movements. You ready for this one? That's why I say, if you have a child in high school, more Muslims have come to Christ in their lifetime than in the previous 1,300 years. Right now, there are 70 Muslim movements to Christ happening in the world. 70. I mean, that's unbelievable. You would think the church would be rejoicing more, but we're still like, oh, Muslims. They're so hard. They don't want Jesus. It's like, are you kidding me? When one missionary for every one million people, yet this is still happening? In Australia, there's one missionary for every uh, 414 people. In Peru, there's one missionary for every 219 people. In the Middle East, there's one missionary for every one million people. Imagine if we actually sent them resources that they deserved. And so I just asked the question, why? Why in the world is our generation getting to experience this incredible onslaught of Muslims coming to Christ? Again, there's still a, there's still a large percentage to go. There's still a large percentage to go. But why have more Muslims come to Christ in the last 30 years and the last 1,400? And I found four reasons, and I think the fourth one is going to floor you, okay? The first three, you're going to be like, saw that one coming, saw that one coming, saw that one coming. The fourth one, you're going to be like, dang, he was right. And you're actually going to drop your jaw, but because I said that, you're going to be like, don't drop my jaw. Do not drop my jaw. The fourth one, you're going to, the first three, you're going to be like, yawn, we got to get out of here in six minutes, whatever. The fourth one, you're going to be like, don't drop my jaw. Our mission methods. Now we have, over the last 25 years or so, been going in and starting with the Quran. We're, we're allowing Muslims to come to Christ and not calling themselves Christians. They can call themselves um, Isa al-Masih, I follow Jesus the Messiah. And so we're, we're utilizing different missionary methods that enable Muslims to come to Christ and not immediately be killed for their faith. We're, we're helping them see the difference between being culturally Muslim, but yet identifying as someone who loves Jesus. Um, the Bible in their language, Wycliffe Bible translators just celebrated their 500th translation. And so now people in Indonesia, the Muslims, the Uyghurs in China who are Muslims have the New Testament in their language. And they can say, oh my goodness. Again, these are not drop your jaw. Have I got to the drop the jaw one? I have not. Have I? I have not. Is the next one drop your jaw one? It is not. Which one's drop your jaw? The fourth. Are you following me? So is this next one going to awe you? No. It might inspire you, but it's not going to awe you. What is the third one? They're seeing radical Islam, and they're asking questions. Is this true Islam? 
And so Muslims are coming to Christ because Boko Haram's coming in and killing their, their, their family in the name of Islam. And they're like, I'm Muslim too. But the fourth one, The fourth one is thanks to the old king of Saudi Arabia. I did send him a thank you. I do not know if he got the bouquet of flowers. But I did send him a thank you for his unbelievable idea. The king of Saudi Arabia had this idea. Christians are translating their Bible into every language of the world. And their goal is to have every language covered by 2030. Let's spend seven billion and get the Quran in every language in the world. And so now the Muslim in Indonesia who owns a Quran but doesn't know what it says because he has to recite it in Arabic, a language he doesn't speak, gets his own Quran in his language and realizes it's a sham. So if you want to evangelize the Muslim world, give to my new ministry opportunity the Quran in every language by 2030. I was joking. But that would be unbelievable, right? Is that not drop your jaw? Like, who would have thought you have Uyghurs in China who don't speak Arabic. They've got, they're Muslim since birth, and they've been given this Quran in Arabic saying, you believe this, and he's like, I, this has got to be the word of God. I don't understand it. Then they're like, hey, Saudi Arabia brings you a gift, glad tidings and great news of joy, <laughs> you know? And you're like, that's what it says? It's just simply unbelievable. And so, um, unfortunately, there is only a tiny portion of the Muslim world that's, that's still reached, even though there's 70 movements. We have 1.6 billion to go. If you were interested in those 70 movements uh, of, of Islam, uh, David Garrison studied and spent seven years tracking each one and he writes um, a chapter he writes about a half a chapter on each and 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 it's called a wind in the house of islam if you want to go go further let me just end with this incredible opportunity because um here's the incredible opportunity with muslims today and these are people who now live in your neighborhood. You have people, you have Muslims from Dubai in your neighborhood. You have Muslims from Qatar in your city. You have Muslims from, from Yemen in your city. When you think about the, the Gulf Arab countries, there's seven. They're on the map. There's seven Gulf Arab countries. You have Yemen, Oman, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Bahrain, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia. And what my wife and I did is we spent about 12 months and we were on site there and we were just researching these countries. And here's what we wanted to know. How many local believers are there in these countries? What we mean by local believers is this. In the United Arab Emirates, there's 3 million people, but only 900,000 are actually Emirati. The rest are Filipino, Indian, there's a church in the United Arab Emirates, but only Indians can go, or South Africans can go, or Canadians can go. There is no known church among the Emiratis in the United Arab Emirates. There's no known church among the people of Oman, even though there's Christians in Oman from other countries. All we wanted to know is this. How many local believers in these countries and how many missionaries were there working with them? And so we just went to all seven of these countries talking to a few missionaries who were there asking this question. How many missionaries are here and how many Christ followers among this nation? The United Arab Emirates, there's 900,000 Emiratis. There's 60 missionaries and there's about 8 to 10 Christ followers. None of these eight to ten know each other. What an amazing opportunity. I mean, imagine if this was your situation. Oman, right next door, there's three million people. There's about 25 missionaries there right now in the country. There's only about 12 to 15 believers. These 12 to 15 don't know each other. They're from all parts of the nation. There's not, they're, they're not meeting together. 
Bahrain, there's about 650,000 Bahrainian peoples, 50 believers, 30 missionaries. Kuwait, 900,000 Kuwaitis. There's about 8 to 10 believers, 50 missionaries on the ground. Qatar, 900,000, 10 to 15 believers. So you can see, though there's 70 movements going on, the Gulf is still very untouched with the gospel. Now look at the population of the next two countries. Look at the population of the next two countries. So what does that mean for you and I? It means when we leave here, we want to be people who shift the shouts. We want to have eyes to see. If you get back to your home homeland, okay, and you're you're at soccer practice with your kid or baseball coaching or whatever, and a guy comes up and says, "Oh, I'm you know we just moved here. We're from the United Arab Emirates." You're like, God has brought this man to my door. I would be completely remiss not to get to know him. Where are you from? We're from Qatar. So I just want you to have eyes to see and ears to hear who God might bring in your life. And I guarantee you, over the next six months of being home, you're going to meet someone from one of these countries. So if you enjoyed um, this today, I will tell you my, my favorite two Muslim books that I always recommend to people are this. The first one is called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. I think it was a lot of people might know that book. It was by a man named Nabil Qureshi who died uh, in his 30s recently. He was a student at university in Rhode Island. His roommate was a Christian. He was a Muslim from Pakistan. Him and his Christian roommate had conversations for four years. They roomed together. His roommate was named David. David said, I'll read the Quran if you read the Bible. Unknown to David, Nabil Qureshi was journaling their conversations, typing them out. And, um, of course, after he graduated, Nabil Qureshi came to Christ, sent his journal to Zondervan, and it was on the New York Times bestseller list for 100 weeks until... Um, he, he recently died. It's an incredible read, two-dayer at most for you. You get through the first 43 pages, and then you won't stop. My second favorite book, virtually no one's heard of, that's okay, it's called 23 Years. It's by a man named Ali Dashti. Ali Dashti was a high cleric of Islam in Iran. He ran a newspaper, cl uh, newspaper in Iran, and um, he was a, a strong Muslim. The older he got, the more he realized Islam was a sham. However, he never converted to anything else. I don't know if he died an atheist or what. But he wrote this book exposing the Quran. He calls it 23 years why. Muhammad prophesied from age 40 to age 63. He wrote this book, gives it to his son-in-law in Iran, and says, do not publish this thing until I die. He died in, 80, he died in 1985. His son-in-law moves to London, gets it published, and now you can get it on Amazon. It's an unbelievable read. Again, he's not a Christ follower, but it's just a peek behind the curtain on what a, a past Muslim says um, about Islam. We're shifting the shouts. We're going to keep going. I guess that's kind of the theme I made up this week, so we'll go with it. Let me just pray for us, okay? Father, thank you so much for just what you're doing among these movements in the Muslim world. We thank you for men like Nabil Qureshi and uh, David Garrison, who helps us see how to better reach Muslims. I pray that we would have eyes to see. I pray that you would just introduce us to various people when we get back home just put opportunity in our path even in our small hometowns surprise us with people from the gulf that we can befriend and see come to know you we ask this in your name amen